Okay, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Let's start reading from verse 19. And last week, we, we spent the entire time on ex, expanding on verse 19, but we'll start reading there now. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord, and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, For she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull, one ephah of flour and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, O Lord, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Okay, so... This is, again, this picture, this beautiful picture of the family. Elkanah is of the remnant of Israel. He's one of the few people remaining in Israel throughout this time of the Judges because this book, 1 Samuel is, is uh, uh, dovetails right in right after the, the, the book in, of the Judges and in fact overlaps in, in a portion of it. And it says that they worshipped in verse 19, they went back to their home, she, he had relations with his wife, the Lord remembers her. Then it says in verse 20, and it comes, came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, because I have asked him of the Lord. And this is, again, a very common name, even in Israel today. Uh, uh, Shmuel is, is the way it's called in, in Hebrew. And in verse 21, it says, Then the man Elkanah went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vows. So now this is the next year. He's going back again. It says, this man, Elkanah, went up with all his household to offer up to the Lord. Then, but Hannah didn't go because, and she, he asked her, why aren't you going? And she explains to her husband. She says, I'm going to go when the child is weaned. He's very young because when he's weaned, he's going to remain there forever. She tells him that when he's weaned, he's going to appear there and he's going to stay there forever. So right now I'm preparing him for this. You say, well, how old was he when he was weaned? Well, if you look in, in there's, there's, a, 
there's a book that's that's not uh, uh, that's not part of our Bible, but there's a book called the Book of Maccabees. Second Maccabees talks about how weaning comes about at the ages between two and three, and so Samuel was in fact very young when he was brought up. And then the question is, would Eli have accepted such a young child when it takes so much care? And the answer is. Uh, there's no reason why he wouldn't, because remember, around the tabernacle wasn't just men. The men were the ones that, that did the sacrifices, but the women served as well. So the Levitical women were serving there as well. And there were children that were offered up to the Lord's service, and the women did raise those children. And in fact, uh, uh, we know, for example, Jephthah's wife, who this period overlaps with her, Jephthah's I'm not, not Jephthah's wife. Jephthah's daughter was dedicated to the Lord. And she there may have even been there serving. So there were women there that served, that both Levitical women and non-Levitical women, that just their lives were serving around the tabernacle. And so to have offered up that boy at that time would not have been so unnatural in their time frame. But what's interesting, the point I want to point out at first is that Elkanah is going up with his household again to offer sacrifices to the Lord. This man is leading his family into worship. He leads his family into worship. He took on this role of being the leader in his family to take them into worship, and it was important for him to do this with his family. So get in your mind now, before you have families, Get in your mind and begin to think through this thing, that you're going to do this. Because so often with young people, it's just getting the mindset to understand this is what you are going to do. You are going to raise your family within the context of the body of Christ. This is a good thing to do. Both men and women, you are to do this. Women, you are to work with your children. Spend time with them. Men, you are to work with your children, but you are to lead them. Elkanah led them. And it's important you do this and you lead your family. Keep your finger there, but go back to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 10. You may remember the story where Moses is going before Pharaoh saying, let us go out and worship and then we'll return. And Pharaoh kept saying, no, we're not going to let you. And then plagues started coming and he said, we'll let you. And then he the plague would go away, and he'd say, I changed my mind, I'm not going to let you go. But look at one of these instances in Exodus chapter 10, reading from verse 8. So Moses and Aaron, Exodus 10:8. so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? Moses said, We shall go with our young and with our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Thus may the Lord be with you, if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So Moses said, We are going to go, along with our wives, And our children and our flocks and our herds, because we have to have a feast. We have to have sacrifices. We have to eat. Our flocks and our herds are going with us. But our children are going with us too. We are not going to go and worship without the family. You know, because these elders, these men are going and appearing before Pharaoh. He says, we're not going without our families. 
Pharaoh said, who's going? He says, our wives and our children. He says, there's no way I'm letting you take your little ones, your entire families. So you see that Pharaoh, which is representative of, of demonic power, representative of oppression, doesn't want the whole family to go. Wants to separate the family from worship. But so much of the experience that God wants us to have as worship comes around worship as a family. So it's not men going to church. It's not a mother going to church. It is a, the entire family unit that is going to church. This is a very good thing. And the enemy tries to break this thing up. So young men, get in your mind this. That on Sunday mornings, you will lead your families to church. You will do that. And I've heard men say, oh, well, you know, my, my wife, she's the spiritual leader of the family. You know, she's really the one that, that really holds us together. And I'm like, you're such a wimp. This is not the way it's supposed to be. You think you're sounding really nice and quaint in this, but you're not. It is not your wife who leads this. You lead it. Lead them into the, the, the faith that you know. Be that spiritual leader. Get this in your mind, that you wake up early and you spend time with the Lord. That you lead your family in that. That your children see you rising up early in the morning and worshiping. Have a family time together. This is a good thing to do. To have a family time together and then lead them into church. Men, you're not to say, well, you know, I go fishing with my son. That's what I do. That's my spiritual service. That's not your spiritual service. That's your service you're supposed to do as a father. But there is a day that you set aside. That you set aside for worship. It says that in the New Testament that they would gather on the first day of the week for the Lord's Supper, for the breaking of bread, for the apostles' teaching, and for prayer. So they would do this sort of thing. There was teaching. So you have the, the different components of the body of Christ there in the New Testament church where they would gather on the first day of the week to do this sort of thing. Well, why weren't they gathering on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday? Sunday never was the Sabbath day, never will be the Sabbath day. Saturday was always the Sabbath day. Because they were Jews and they had Jewish service on Saturdays. On Sundays they would gather for the apostles' teaching. The New Testament is so Jewish. It's so Jewish you have to wonder sometimes how any Gentiles could have come to faith. Because the New Testament is so Jewish. But they met together on the first day of the week for this, to do this. This is a good practice to do. Remember, you're going to lead your family in the ways of Christ. You demonstrate to your children. So many times parents will say to me, you know, they'll have this rebellious 14-year-old, and they'll say, would you talk to my son? You know, just tell him how important the Bible is. I'm like, um, is the... Bible important in your life? Or should I just tell him that it should be important in his life? If it's important in your life, how do you demonstrate that to him? You know, then they're all confused. You know, they, they thought that, you know, I would go in there and just save the day with their rebellious 14-year-old. No. You demonstrate that to your own children. You demonstrate that the Bible is important, that the Word of God is important, that taking them to church is important. Elkanah led the way with his family. This was important to him. He was the remnant. The remnant means that there was only a few of these people. 
but there was a remnant, maybe 10%. I don't know the percentage, but it was a small percentage. And you see that among Christians today. There is really only a remnant. Most people who call themselves Christians never go to church, and if they do, it's a couple times a year. Or if they do, there's no life in the church. The body of Christ has meant so much to me and to my family. I remember when my kids were little. I mean, from they were just a couple weeks old, and we would bring them to church. You know, and we we started, and you know, we'd hold them when they fuss. We'd take them in the back, and then when they were three or four weeks old, they went to the nursery. People were like, oh, I don't want my child to go to the nursery. They're going to pick up all sorts of sicknesses. This is good. It is good for your child to build up resistance. It really is. Kids were made to to pick up colds all the time. They have runny noses and they have colds and this is good or else they get to be teenagers, they go off to college and they get sick all the time because they've never been exposed to anything. And, you know, so parents who are afraid, well, I don't want my kid to go in the nursery. Well, what's wrong with the nursery? I mean, it's good for them to be in the nursery. In fact, they like it there more than sitting in the church service. I want my kid to be in the church service. But they don't get anything out of it. And it, and it disrupts other people around them. You become a part of the body of Christ. And then they start going to kids' Sunday school classes and they learn the way kids can learn. You know, where they color and they draw and things like this. And they get these little Bible stories. This is good. You teach them appropriately. And my kids, you know, got involved in different ministries and puppet ministries. And the body of Christ... This was good. They learned things that I could never teach them. I know nothing, nothing about music. You know, just a little bit about basses are big, right? And cellos are a little bit smaller. And then violas and violins, right? But this is all I know. Everything I know about music, I just told you. But my kids know much more about music than I do. They didn't learn it from me. They learned it in the body of Christ. They've learned so much through the body of Christ. They've learned community. They've learned relationships in the body of Christ. So much was there. They've learned how to interact with other people. This is the good thing about the body of Christ. And so you learn to deal with this and you become a part of the body of Christ where you come and your children see you give something. Not just you're coming as a family, you sit there, you occupy some space and go home. No, that they see that this is where their parents serve. And so that then as they grow up, they feel obliged to serve in some way. This is a good thing. You demonstrate this. You demonstrate service. You demonstrate giving. Everything revolves around the community of the body of Christ. And then when you go through the hard times, the body of Christ is there for you. You know, when we've had tragedies, when we've had loss, it was friends around us. It was the pastoral staff around us. It wasn't like... You know, we had to call on a pastor who didn't even know who we were. I mean, they knew us very well. And then that there, were, there was the body of Christ around us. People would come. The elders would come and pray with, with us when people were sick, when people were infirmed. When, when my child was in the hospital, the elders came and anointed with oil and prayed. It wasn't like we were calling some foreigners that we didn't know. They gladly came because there's... A giving in the body of Christ. This is what this man did. He led them. It was that time of year for him. He was leading them now to the tabernacle. This was before the synagogue system got set up. 
Once they had synagogues, they would meet weekly in the synagogues. But before this, they would just have to go up yearly for these feasts at the tabernacle. They would go. Okay, and then it says, so, so then uh, Elkanah says to his wife, you know, you know, let's go. And she says, in verse 22, but Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. So her not going was not just because she didn't feel like going. I mean, she had a purpose. She had a real purpose. So, you know, it's interesting to see Elkanah in this time. You know, he says, he, he says to Hannah, let's go. And Hannah doesn't just say, I'm not going. You know, it wasn't just this, I'm not going. I am going. No, she didn't do this. She explained to him, there's a reason that I want to work with this child because in a couple of years, I'm going to be offering him up to stay there forever. For the rest of his life, he will be there. And it's interesting, Hannah's response, or Elkanah's response. He says, okay. I mean, Elkanah was a reasonable guy. As intent as he was on getting his whole family there to worship. And remember, Penina, his other wife would go and her her sons and daughters would go. He listened to his wife and he heard her rationale and he saw the sincerity of her heart. It wasn't just that she wanted to get out of her obligations of serving God. He listened to her. You don't see God's judgment come crashing down, but the man listened to her. So there was, there was some reason here. You know, the kids got the flu. Okay, you know, one of us has got to stay home, but the whole family doesn't have to stay home to nurse this kid. And, and uh, um, so she stayed home to take care of this kid. But look what she says. That I may bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. So she had made an oath. She had made an oath earlier on that, that uh, um, in verse 11 of that same chapter, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come upon his head. Remember, that's the Nazarite vow she was taking for her son that he would have dedicated service to the Lord. The Lord answered. And guess what? She kept her oath. And look what Elkanah says to her. It says in verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So all Elkanah wanted to be sure of is that her oath that she had given would be confirmed. That she would fulfill that oath. If you look back in Numbers, a few books back you'll find the book of Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 30, it talks about oaths. In Numbers chapter 30. And it took oaths really seriously. Numbers chapter 30, reading from verse 1. Then Moses spoke. Numbers 30 verse 1. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So you make an oath, you keep it. You make an oath, you keep it. Now look in verse 3. 
Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house, in her youth, and if her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then her vow shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. So you see that, again, there's this sense of submission in the family. If a woman makes a vow, and then it talks about if, if, if a married woman makes a vow. If a married woman says, you know, I'm going to do such and such. If her husband doesn't hear it, the vow doesn't stand if he negates it when he hears about that. But if he hears about it and says nothing, then the vow stands. So there's this whole sense of family submission one to another. But oaths, obligations that we make are to stand. We take oaths in life. We, make, we, we take on obligations in life. I'll give you one. It's in marriage. And the vast majority of people have no regard for this. They stand there and they say, I commit to live with this person in marriage until death do us part. And it means absolutely nothing. The scripture says oaths mean something. You take an oath not just to be married, you take an oath of fidelity. Meaning that I am committed to you and you only for as long as we both shall live. There is a promise that has been made. And we go willy-nilly through these promises back and forth, one after another and after another. You know how wicked the heart of men can be? Is that, you know, you, you make this oath, you get into marriage, and then the rainy days come. There are seasons of rainy days. They happen in marriage. You know, I had a student email me that, you know, she's just gotten married and she says, marriage is just terrific. It is just terrific. And, you know, she's been married all of one week. And I said, I am glad you are so happy. Well, when issues arise and issues will arise, remember what you wrote and remember the obligation that you have taken on and your covenant. You know, she thinks I'm crazy. And she's not a believing student, but, she, you know, she wrote this to me and I'm just giving her a lesson here. And she probably is all upset that I should say that, you know, issues will arise. But it's the reality of life. How do I know? Because rain comes. Rainy days come. They always do. And men get into this, and after a few years of living with this woman, you know, they'll meet some other woman and they'll think, oh, why, if I could have only met you earlier... And then been obliged to you and not this other person. This happens to the heart of men all the time. You think that men, you think you're going to meet this girl, fall in love with her, marry her, and then, you know, forever. But this thought races through the minds of men. And they even say this, and I've seen men say, you know, it's one thing to think it, I've seen men say, to women, if I had only met you earlier. And I'm like, what are you saying to her? It's not your wife. Plus, you're, you're ten years older than this girl. If you had met her when you had married your wife, she would have been twelve years old at the time. What are you talking about? And plus, had you been married to her 
You think that after 10 years you would feel the same way that you do at this instant? You're going to find somebody else you're going to feel like that about them. There's an oath here. There's a promise here. Oaths were made to be kept. Elkanah said, you made an oath to offer up your first child. I just want to make sure that you fulfill that. That's my concern, Hannah. You want to spend a couple of years weaning him, getting him prepared for this service? Fine. But remember your oath. Remember the promise that has been made. A promise to fidelity. That means you don't go flirting around with other women. That it's fidelity, not just of the flesh, but also of the relationship. Fidelity of the heart. And women, that you have fidelity of the heart so that when things aren't going perfectly well between you and your husband, your heart doesn't become all of a sudden open to this guy at work who's showing you attention. This happens all the time. All the time. You're thinking, well, my husband never listens to me and this guy at work, at least he listens to me. And then you end up going out to lunch with him. And he looks at you over lunch. Whereas, you know, they, they say you can go out to a restaurant and you can tell who the married couples are and who the unmarried couples are because the married couples are, you know, reading the newspapers or having lunch together or they're, you know, looking around whereas the unmarried couples are just staring at each other. There's a commitment there. So that as soon as I start sensing my heart drifting in another direction, boom, you know, you cut this thing off instantly. Why? Because there was a promise in marriage, a covenant promise before God that I will be married to you and there is fidelity in this relationship. That it is me, one, you, one, together, we become now a new one. This entity stands now. There's fidelity of the heart, fidelity of the flesh. Oaths matter. They mean something. I mean, Hannah could have said, well, you know, I was in a state of distress. I had no kids. I was being abused by Penina. And, 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 uh, uh, and, and you know, Eli was saying that I was drunk. I mean, what do you expect? No, she made an oath. She made an oath and she was going to keep that oath. If we make an oath and a covenant, did you know when you get engaged, there is a commitment? Don't get engaged haphazardly because engagement is even a commitment. There is a commitment there in engagement. You take that deeply and you take that seriously. And I know in our culture, oh, I was engaged to him, I was engaged to him, and I was engaged to him. I mean, there, there's some sort of a, a, a promise here, even in engagement. That means you be very careful with your heart. And if you see a relationship that is not leading toward a marriage relationship, be done with that relationship. Because your heart ends up getting caught in this thing. If it's not leading to marriage, cut it off so that it doesn't affect the one with whom you're going to be led to marriage. It is different than the way our culture goes. So you may, have, you, you may go out on a date to assess, is this the right one? But have that around the body of Christ. It's not too secretly going off together. Get advice from friends. Get advice from 
people in the church, get advice from trusted people, get advice from parents. Bring your parents into this. He said, well, I, my parents don't have any idea what I like. They know better than you do what's good for you. Because what happens is, is, is when a young man sees a woman, I mean, it can, it can happen just like that. All of a sudden, it is amazing what happens biochemically. These chemicals start being made extremely rapidly in the brain. And, and there are these receptors that start moving very rapidly and firing. And all of a sudden, a young man's mind is just drilled in on this woman and he's thinking, this is it. This is the one. Women, the same thing can happen. Women can, can meet a guy and the guy gives her a little bit of attention. And all of a sudden, she says, maybe this is the one. And all of a sudden, you get these two highly complex chemical entities that start getting drawn off together. And what happens are, is, is that parents are sitting out here and they're not caught up with all this chemical emotion. It's chemically driven. It really is. And you say, well, you, you know, this is, this, it's deeper than chemical for me. Well, let me tell you something. I could give you a little bit of another chemical that will counteract all of that. I really could. And then you're telling me it's deeper than chemical. Yes, the source of this emotion, it's, it's a biochemical thing. You get people who stand outside of this and they go, um, I don't think he's for you. Well, why not? Well, because he's 47 and you're 22. And because he's been married twice before and he has children your age. Well, what's wrong with that? You, know, you, you see what I mean? The, you, you, get, you get people that can speak in your life that may all of a sudden, it may sound irrational, but it's really quite rational. Let it be around the body of Christ. Let the body of Christ be there to help you with those decisions so that you don't get drawn astray into this thing and that you don't move into engagement willy-nilly in this thing. That you go slowly in this. And then if the Lord calls, then, then you get engaged. And then it leads into something in marriage. The other thing is, don't let this thing get physical, or else the heart gets caught up much more deeply. And so it's much harder to break off. I've seen women in particular, in physical relationships with young men, and these young men just string them along year after year after year after year with no intention of ever sealing a deal here. And these women cannot move out of this relationship, which they know is unhealthy, which they know is wrong, which they know is physically and emotionally unhealthy, because their hearts are caught. You've got to be careful and guard your heart in that. Oaths are important. Commitments are important. I was in a, a board meeting yesterday and several of the board members had agreed to something when they were coming onto the board. And as soon as I came onto the board several years later and I saw these documents, I said, you want me on the board, I'll come on the board, but I'm not getting on the, on the board under these terms. Because I really read those documents and I wouldn't agree to it. So I'm on the board, but not under the same terms as these other people. And now we come up to a big decision. These people on the board are unable to move and even carry out fiduciary responsibility on the board because of commitments they made coming in. And one man, you know, they were all believers. And they said, you know, we've made a commitment. 
And they were really caught because they had a fiduciary responsibility to act in one way, but they had made an agreement on the other side. And I looked at them and I said, I honor your agreement. I see what you're, you're stuck. You're just stuck because you had an agreement. You can't just say, well, I put this agreement aside. As believers, we can't do that. The world does this all the time. You know, I see people negotiate contracts and the next day break them in, in professional sports. And my son says, oh, no, Dad, that's just the way it is in football. I said, no, that's not the way it is. That's not the way life is. We are different. You sign a contract, you have an agreement, there's some, something bound there. You're bound by this thing. And if there's terms of a buyout, then there's terms of a buyout. But you can't just sign a contract and the next day say, psych, I'm not going to do it. I mean, we are a different sort of people. There is a contract been made. So oaths matter. These are arrangements and oaths matter. And then it says that in verse 24, When she had weaned him, she took up with her a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a jug of wine. And she brought them to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. In Hebrew, it says the child was a child. He was young. Can you imagine a mother giving away a three-year-old? Now, she, it said she would come back yearly and visit him. But she really offered him up to the Lord. This was a huge commitment. And you do this with your children. You know, it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, If you love... Son or daughter, more than me, you are not worthy of me. Who said that? Jesus. You think he just said it because it sounded like nice words? He said, if you love son or daughter, not, if you love son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of me. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Whoever loves his life in this world shall lose it. But he who loses his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. You love your life more than you love Jesus, you will lose your life. You love your children more than you love Jesus, you will lose your children. You offer them up to the Lord. The biggest hindrance to Christian missions are Christian parents. I don't want my kid to go there. It's dangerous over there. Well, just remember, God can take care of your child and they may get run over by a car if they're over here. And it's pure selfishness because I want to see my grandchildren when they grow up. I want to be a grandfather. I want to be a grandmother. That's selfishness. If you love your children more than you love Jesus, you're not worthy of Him. Jesus said this. You release your children to God. One day, you're going to hold these little kids in your hand. You just love them so much that you would in an instant give your life for this little one. And then God has this amazing way of working. And it's called adolescence. And after they've been through adolescence, it is so much easier to release them, to go. Both for them and for you. This is God's order. I'm telling you, God works this way. If you had the same affections for your child when they were 18, as you did for them when they were 2, you would never let them go. But they've been through this transition. You're like, I can't wait till they go. This is, you see, God knows what He's doing. He really does. But you remember, you release your children. They're to be released. She's releasing them to the Lord and she's offering up a bull and an ephah of flour and a jug of wine. There are all these offerings. Offerings cost something. We're buying a, a 
a Christmas cow, you know, for these people in India. If you haven't yet given Joe's over there, give them your donation for this thing. We're going to get this cow for these folks in India. We need $500 and it's going to come together. And we're getting close to that, that target. And, and, uh, uh, but this is the last day. But there's a cost involved in giving. David, in, in uh, uh, 2 Samuel 24:24 says, I will not offer up to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Someone was going to give him land to, to have his offering. He says, you're the king, just take it. David said, I will not offer up to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And he paid the full price for that land. Worshipping the Lord, offerings cost something. And they don't just cost two cents. They cost something. This was a bull she was offering up. This is a big thing. We're coming all together to buy a, a, a cow for these people to get milk in India. I mean, and all of us are combining together for this. It's a big thing to just walk up with this three-year-old bull who had to be perfect in all respects. Couldn't, you know, have a big cyst of cancer hanging off its side. Had to be a good bull. And then, just cut its throat. There is a cost in worship. There is a cost in giving. We've gone on a lot less vacations my family, than other people in my position. Why? Because our money, a lot of it, we will dedicate to certain things within the body of Christ, within giving. And I have so much more than all those other people that went on a gazillion vacations with their family. We've never been to, you know, Disney World. When we lived in California, the kids were little, we drove down to Disneyland. But, you know, there are things that you sacrifice. It comes out of your sustenance. This giving. And there are so many people that monetarily have more than I have. But as they look at my life, they would love to have what I have. When you give that which is your sustenance and offer it up for the blessing of others, for the extension of the body of Christ, some people will say that's such a waste. But no, it is an investment. What the body of Christ has placed in my family is such a treasure. People say, you know, well, does the Bible even talk tithe? No, it doesn't talk tithe in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was actually much more than a tithe that ultimately they had to end up giving. Some people say, well, our taxes is like our tithe. and It becomes a non-issue when you're giving and you have a spirit and an attitude of giving, I have gotten out of the body of Christ much more back than 10% of my salary. And what they have placed in my children and in my wife is much more of a treasure than 10% of my salary. When you learn to give, there is a cost. You don't offer up to the Lord that which costs you nothing. And you don't think that, oh, I gave a dollar, I gave something, I'm pretty good, huh? No, a dollar is not good. Not for anyone in this room. You give out of something. And, and really, the church here, this church, this body of Christ, really doesn't care about your five dollars. It doesn't pay you know, the pastor's salary very much. They care about what it does for you. The attitude of giving to learn how to release. And when you give to the church, I'll tell you, it does nothing for me. That's why I can stand here and say this. I get zero. You know, the the pastor could double my salary for teaching this Sunday school class, and it won't make any difference. And there's only one number that that works with. When you give, it is for you. It is a demonstration to God 
that you are committed to Him. There is a cost involved. And she dedicated this child to the Lord, and there was a cost in worship, a cost in being dedicated to the Lord. When you do this, you get so much back. If you hold back, you say, this is mine, this is mine, it is yours. And you don't have to give it. But you've just lost what that investment would have gotten you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the blessings of mercy and grace which you've shown to us. Lord, thank you so much for your word and the challenges from Elkanah and Hannah and the way they lived their lives, for their dedication, for their willingness to serve. Father, I pray these young people would take hold of this word, that they would lead their families in the way of Christ, that they would become models in the body of Christ. And they would see the treasure that's then instilled in the lives of their families. That they would take oaths and make commitments that would mean something in marriage. For marriage for life. For fidelity. Father, I pray that you protect these young women from getting involved in relationships that are unhealthy. Father, I pray for young men that you protect them the same way. Father, that you would guard and protect them and bring into their lives the things that you have. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the truth of it. Father, may we walk in it, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I ask. Amen.